I've been thinking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount a lot, and do you know that we have spent uh, seven months now, almost, journeying through this half a year, and some of you might be wondering, we're not even finished one chapter yet. How long is this guy going to take? <laughs> but I want to remind you this morning that this is the greatest sermon ever preached, and it doesn't leave one area of your life untouched. If you're willing to accept every single word of Jesus this morning, you'll be so amazed. And at the end of this journey, you will find yourself having been ministered to and challenged to grow in every single area of your life. And I want to remind you what I'm going to preach on this morning. I am probably the least qualified to do so. Can I just be very vulnerable with you? What I am preaching on today, I am not pointing the finger at anybody except myself, okay? So I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel loved by the Father. But I also want you to know that uh, He's going to go after our hearts this morning because He knows what's best, right? I say to my little girl after having to help her correct her behavior, I say, you have to trust that Daddy knows best for you. They might be contended at a teenage level, I grant that, but when they're two and a half years old, I'm asking them for blind faith in their father's ability to help them. And so that's what we're in for now. We're going to trust God that he's going to put his finger on some areas. And I guarantee you today, if you will be open and willing to obey him, you will not regret it. I want to explain to you again that this morning, if you want to become a Christian, or if you say, no, I've crossed that line of faith, I'm a Christ follower, the call on your life, it is the highest possible level that you can imagine. Our Christian life has got nothing to do with the world. It operates entirely differently. It has an entirely different frame of reference. And for us, the call of our king, it's much higher than what the world accepts as good enough. Acceptable. Can I say, the call of the one you are following Jesus is to become like him. And the one who calls you is sinless. He is sinless. That is the call, is we are called to become ever increasingly looking like the one who has called us, Jesus Christ. And he explains it like this. He says, there is such a thing as the kingdom of heaven. And he wants the kingdom of heaven to come into your life. He wants Jesus' rule and reign to come into your life and mine because that is the place of greatest blessing. Is when we are under the authority of Jesus and living in line with him, I guarantee you the Beatitudes means the life of blessedness. You cannot reach a greater level of blessing than obedience to Jesus. And in a sense, that's what's at stake. He's saying, guys, you've got two options as Christians. You can settle for second best, which is a kind of life that mimics the world that you got saved from. But we are quick to forget the kind of almost tyranny that that lifestyle brought us. Or the second option is this. We get to enter into the abundant life that Jesus promises to those who are willing to say, I'll follow you, Lord. 
wherever that may lead us, wherever that may take me, I am determined and my fundamental belief is what you want for my life, it is best. And that's the tension as a Christian is you've got yourself and your own old ways that want to be in charge. You want to be calling the shots. There's a sort of safety and familiarity in our sinfulness. I'll be as open as that. But the radical nature of this sermon is saying, do you believe? Do you believe that what Jesus Christ is calling you into, it is the abundant life and it is the foretaste of heaven on earth? And that's what we are going to touch here. He said, unless... Unless our righteousness, our right living with God in every single area of our lives exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which are under the law, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the law of Moses, we will never enter into the kingdom blessing and power that he has for us to experience and achieve. And he explains it like this, and he starts at the most important point, it is anger. Can I just say again, anger is the very first and probably the most common emotion that causes the kingdom of heaven to be blocked in our lives. And I said last week, when we start talking about this thing of anger, it's very difficult because it's an emotion. And an emotion in itself essentially is good. I want you to know that. Anger is not evil. Anger in and of itself. God gets angry. Not so? And to have this emotion of anger, it's to be human. And a part of your being made in the image of God, I want to remind you, is to experience these emotions. But anger is neutral, just like any of the emotions. What determines whether it is sinful or not is determined by what that anger is rooted in. What's the cause of that anger coming out in our hearts? And there's only two kinds. The first was righteous anger, and I won't go into that we did it all last week, but righteous anger is when there's an absence of ego. Listen to the sermon from last week. But the second kind which we're dealing about in this text is unrighteous anger, and it is 99% of the time that. And unrighteous anger comes up in our lives because of two reasons. One is because our egos get hurt. Can I say... If you like me, you know exactly what that's like. When you feel criticized, threatened, rejected, humiliated, overlooked, undervalued, disrespectful, all those things cause this anger to rise up in us because our egos are hurt, not so. But the second kind is this is frustration or obstacles to ego is when you have something that you want to achieve. Oh, us 21st century Middle class, sterling knights know exactly what this is like. All of our cars and fast life and fast pace, we have these goals. And when something gets in the way, oh dear, they become a target because they're getting in the way of what you want to achieve. And Jesus says, we have to take this anger seriously. Can I just again gently say to you this morning, anger, unrighteous anger, is one of the most serious things that God deals with us in our life. He's quite lenient on a lot of things, but when it comes to anger, he puts his finger on it immediately. Why is that? Because we said last week that anger grows. Not so? I mean, this, we, guys, we are human beings here. I'm not talking to 
the choir. No, I am talking to the choir. I, it grows, right? And it starts, it goes from internal anger, and what boils in our heart bursts out in our mouths. And this is where Jesus has to minister into today, because our unrighteous anger does damage. Let's just turn the camera off ourselves for a moment and think about those that have said hurtful things to us, which when we still bring that up, it's painful, not so. The damage of unrighteous anger on a person's life might be for the rest of their life. And so this thing of anger, God has to deal with because it boils up and comes out of our mouth. That's that word rocker. That's that word of going, it is a horrible word. It is a, a terrible, terrible word. There's some choice words I could use, but it would be inappropriate as a Christian to say. Or there is this ultimate, which is the ugliest kind, this kind of contempt. That's what anger does. You feel so justified in your position that this person in your life has become worthless, has become almost contemptible. It's judgmental. And so there were these degrees of anger, but they had degrees of judgment. And I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. But how did we deal with that? And I, I'm just bringing you up to speed because they all connect to what I want to speak in today. Is there are five steps we have to do to deal with anger. And so if you missed last week, but you're wanting to know, I want to deal with it now. Well, you can do it right now. The first is we have to recognize that we're angry. Okay? Don't go, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. No, no, you're angry. It's very unhelpful to suppress it. Then we confess it, which means we admit it's wrong. Isn't that a tough thing to do? We confess it. Then we repent of it. Remember, I used the, the picture when I lived in Cove Rock when I, I was at the ridge. I'd drive past cows. And they'd be sitting down and they'd ruminate. And they'd vomit it up and they'd chew. That's what we do. And we swallow. No, no. We don't ruminate. We spit it out. Repentance is we turn away. We, we say, I refuse to go back to that position of anger. And when it starts to rise in me again, I spit it out. I cross it out. I have nothing to do with it. And the fourth was to forgive. And this is very important. You know what? How do you know if you've forgiven somebody? It's if you no longer wish them any harm. How do you know if you've forgiven yourself? If you no longer have any harmful feelings towards yourself. Ah, oh, brilliant. But the fifth is, the most difficult of all, it's to reconcile. And this is when our internal anger has boiled. And out it comes. And it doesn't necessarily have to be violent. It can be cold and clinical. Not so. And when we have moved into external anger, guys, you've got to know, it hurts. It hurts. And it hurts deep. And it hurts painfully. Is what we behave in the way we... It is such an issue for God that He's saying the whole process will not be complete between you and Him until this fifth step of a positive, responsible action of making peace happens, we will not experience fellowship with God. For some of us here, this will be life-changing for you, as it is for me. It is this moment when God calls us to reconcile. And I'm going to do my best to try and unpack what does that look like practically. 
Well, I'll tell the first thing is, the reason why Jesus starts in this first section of, of, of Matthew chapter 5 is those first four steps, we have to deal with ourselves first. And I'll read it with you this morning. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But here he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry, it's you, you've got the issue, myself, I've got the issue with his brother, we're angry, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's dealing with us. We have to deal with our anger first before we are able to reconcile secondly. But then he comes to this part, Matthew 23, 5 verse 23. So, therefore, he's saying, once you have dealt with yourself, if you are offering, or now that you've actually committed the sin of anger, once you, if you are offering that gift, your gift at the altar, and they remember, they remember that your brother has something against you. You've hurt your brother. You've hurt your sister. You've hurt somebody in your life. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then he says something interesting. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the God and you be put in prison. Truly, this is Jesus, I'm not lying. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Starts with us, steps one to four. Starts with the next person, step five, reconciliation. What does it mean to reconcile? It means to make peace. Simply put, means to make peace. And uh, the reason why this is so important to the Lord is because it causes great damage. But I want to encourage you this morning, although there might be great damage done by unrighteous anger in this text, there's great encouragement that even though we might have been a vessel of damage to somebody, God's saying, if you will reconcile, you will be a vessel of healing. Maybe you didn't hear me. There is a remedy that can happen where in your life you might have done great damage to a person. But God is saying, if you will take up responsibility to amend that, you can become a vessel of enormous healing to the person you hurt. And so God takes us seriously. And why does Jesus, why does Jesus say, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Why does he use this weird moment of ceremonial worship? What we said last week is this, is that we will not experience the intimacy that God wants to have with us unless this thing is dealt with in our lives. Remember I said last week, if we have paused fellowship in our hearts with another brother or sister, God pauses fellowship with us until we sort it out. But some of us, we might be going, you know, I've just been dry for years. I've just been upset in, in terms of I've never been able to have much peace in my life. I want to ask you, a good question to ask is, when last did I get angry and when, what did I do about it? And it affects private worship. The Bible is so honest. Private worship is when you're in your home, it's happened to me. I want to do sermon prep. And I'm wanting to get into the presence of God. And my little girl comes in and I get angry with her for disturbing me. Or I have a fight with my wife. Or there's some sort of ding-dong that happens in your home life. <laughs> Peter says, 
good luck. If you don't make right with your spouse, God's not going to hear your prayers. 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor so that your prayers might be heard. A hostile marriage affects our relationship with God. Or how about this? It affects our public worship. If we have an issue, even within the church, towards a brother or sister, we will struggle to feel any peace. We will struggle to feel any sense of the presence of God or hear His voice. It will cause a dilemma for us when we are in the fellowship. But I say the second reason why Jesus uses this is because our natural thing to try and fix the guilt we feel from self-righteous anger is to offer gifts to the Lord. Can I explain a little bit of my own heart? Maybe you can relate. You've blown it with another person and you've gotten angry and you start to get, you start, you're aware, your conscience is pricked. What do you do? Well, I'll make sure, I'll pray more, I'll read my Bible more, I'll watch my mouth. I will offer these gifts to God and I'll try and correct my wrong by doing more good in front of God's eyes. There's this thing of offering gifts because of our guilt. Anybody relate to that? You sort of pull up your socks spiritually. Because the one thing you don't want to do is go and make right with the person. <laughs> you will look for any other way. Not so. This is what we like. We will look for any other way to fix the situation before God. But we will not go and do the one thing he says, which is say, go and make right with your brother and sister. We will do whatever it takes in order not to lose face. Hey, anybody can relate? Do you notice that some of you here might experience this, I have, where you do all four steps. You do, you acknowledge, you confess, you repent, you forgive, but there's no peace. It's this thing of God saying, even trying to fix your relationship with God, it requires you fixing a horizontal relationship in your life. If the two don't go hand in hand, then you will not experience the closeness and intimacy which you longed for and which you are longing for right now. It shows how difficult reconciliation is because remember what the root of unrighteous anger is. It's pride. It's our ego. And when we have to reconcile, the thing we have to address is this ego of ours. It's so unhelpful. We have to climb down from our position. And in fact, I would say the biggest challenge is not the other person that we have to go to that we've heard. The biggest challenge is ourselves and our own ego in the process. Not so? So another reason of why Jesus uses this example of offering up a gift at the altar. And this is what I believe is also a sound interpretation. Is that our greatest weapon, church, against unrighteous anger is maintaining a close walk with the Lord. There's something in this picture of this person coming. I think in this text, this person has forgotten that they've hurt anybody. I don't think they even quite realize what they've done. But they're coming into the God's presence. They're wanting to have an honest, open, frequent contact with their Savior. There's this desire to come into the presence of God. And when they do, God says, bing, 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 there's something that you did. They remember that they have hurt their brother. There is something about the Spirit working in the person's life that draws near to Jesus that makes them sensitive. How often did a person hurt you and they didn't even know they did it? 
How often do we hurt people and we don't even know we've done it? Not so? And the thing that keeps us from unrighteousness, if you are a person that struggles with anger, let me tell you, the greatest weapon in your life is a desire to come into the presence of God regularly and you're willing to be as open and honest and objective about whatever God says in order to get it. If that is you, my friend, you are on safe ground. But haven't you noticed in your life, when you start to wander from intimacy with God and closest to Him, does your sensitivity increase? Let me tell you, our mouths become relaxed. Our emotions become hard. When we start to neglect being close to Jesus, we start to neglect a sensitivity to the Spirit. And what begins to happen is we start becoming vulnerable to the flesh. It's just how it is. And there's something precious about this. Where Jesus is saying, guys, if we will be, we will be almost... Um, uh, 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 belligerent in our coming to God, with a desire to be close to Him, He will be faithful to keep us from ourselves. Can I be honest with you as a parent of a two young children? The greatest weapon for my anger against my children is my time with the Lord. I find increasingly this capacity to be objective about yourself, to be honest, and to be able to be open to recognizing faults. It comes through the help of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you now, it is a powerful thing when a person's life is surrendered to God and there is this ever-increasing sensitivity to what offends the Spirit. And the reason why this is important is because so often we can preempt things early because of just a time with the Lord, because God makes us aware of what another person is feeling, we can catch it right then and there. But what we'll see just now is that if we leave it, something begins to happen and begins to harden and begins to make reconciliation a lot more difficult. Well, I would say this, my last point of why does Jesus use this example of leaving your gift at the altar and running and to go and fix the relationship? Do you notice that he says, we leave our gift. And when I was preparing, I felt God say, I want you to encourage every single person here this morning in this difficult task of reconciliation. The reason why you leave your gift at the altar is because God wants you back as soon as possible. He wants your fellowship with God, with himself to be restored as soon as possible. He's not saying, take that gift, sort yourself out, and once you've been in the naughty corner for five minutes, you can come back when you're ready. What God is saying is, guys, he's in it. And so he's saying he wants you to leave your gift at the altar so that when you run and you make reconciliation with the person that's hurt you, you come straight back and enjoy fellowship with God. It's incredible. God's kindness in this. It is so awesome. He's not going to moralize you. He's not going to point the finger. He's not going to say, well, you've got to do your time before I'll let you enjoy my presence. He's saying, no, the second you will leave your, your gift and go and sort it out is the second you can come back and return. I want to unpack, I'm doing very well for time, I want to unpack this morning, from that point of encouragement, three things that require our responsibility, three principles for reconciliation. The first is this, in the text, who's responsible for making the situation right? It is the person who caused the hurt. It says here, if you 
Offer your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Do you wait for that brother to raise it up and recognize the hurt and come to you and say, hey, you have... no, no, if it's you who caused the hurt, my friend, you and I have to go. The second is this. Can I just point out that in this thing of who takes initiative for reconciliation, can I say it's much easier to recognize our hurt. Not so. When somebody hurts us, we hold on to it. It brews in us. But it's much more difficult to recognize when we've been the one who's done the hurt. Because of our sense of superiority that our anger makes us feel. Artie Kendall puts it like this. We all have to deal with our egos when we reconcile because anger is what makes us lose our temper, but pride is what keeps us there. That's the problem. And when there's pride, it blinds us. We lose objectivity about ourselves. And I'll say this. I tell you now, the most helpful thing in a situation, and we will see it matter, is the second you say, I did the hurt, I'm going to go fix it. What happens if you're the one who's hurt by another person's unrighteous anger? What's your responsibility then? Well, I would say that if that's you and you're going, this was just something out of the blue. This, this person attacked me. This person said these things about me. They said da, 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 da. And I am just sitting here going, I don't know how to cope with this this morning. What do I do? How do I deal with this? I'm so hurt. Well, the first thing is this. I want to say to you this morning, lovingly, that you have to protect that hurt from turning into your own unrighteous anger. And I say, remember what the cause of unrighteous anger is? It's when our egos are hurt. And the difficulty is, and this is the danger of anger, guys, in your marriage, in your family, even in the church, the cycle of revenge can happen because the one gets angry at the other and the other one gets angry because they're hurt in return. And so the one exacts vengeance on the other. Anybody experienced a marriage like that? Anyone experienced a, a, a parenting relationship like that? Is this thing needs to break because if one doesn't lay down and be willing to go, well, I am not going to pick up unrighteous anger, the cycle just goes round and round and round. Your job, if you are hurt this morning, is to practice those first four steps every single day. Your job is to make sure that on your side, you are guarding your heart against that hurt because that hurt can move quickly more often than not into unrighteous anger. The second thing, if you've been hurt this morning, what do you do? Is you yourself be open to reconciliation. You see, it's not very well. I, can, you, can you just think of this for a moment? Let's say I've hurt Pierre. And I go to Pierre. And I say, Pierre, I want to make right with you. I'm sorry. This has happened. I did this and this and this and this. If Pierre does not or is not open to reconciliation, oh dear. I can only go so far. Peace can only come so far. Shalom, this well-being of God can only come so far. Is in your life, you need to be open. I need to be open to showing mercy. And the hardest thing, this is, this is the greatest challenge of our lives. I'm talking about stuff that is the most difficult stuff to do in the world. Is when that person comes, our natural instinct is to punish, not so? 
our natural instinct is to point the finger and say, you did this and this and this and this and this, and you're going to pay for it. It's to prove the point. No, no. We not only refuse to turn into our, our hurt to turn into unrighteous anger, which is meekness, we, sh- we make a decision to show mercy. Is that you this morning? Is there an open door for this person to come into your life and to say, I'm sorry? What happens, what happens if the issue is persistent? You're getting hurt over and over again. So you're saying, Matt, must I just keep quiet about it? If this person's hurt me, must I just zip my lip and be a punching bag? Do I not have a voice to actually address the unrighteous behavior that's causing persistent hurts? I would say, you do. But you have to be extremely careful in how you address the hurt that is happening to you. It needs an enormous amount of wisdom and tact. Because if you had to ask me, generally speaking, I'm not the one that has the issue. I'm not the one that has the hurts. In actual fact, that person has to come and speak to me. The premise is, you make sure your side sorted out. You don't go talk to them. Because I guarantee you, you start to get some problem. If you go to that person and say, let's say they're in the office, say, I forgive you for shouting at me. They'll go, what? What, what are you talking about? They won't recognize what they've done. In the end, you will flare up what's already a smoldering furnace. And we can be passive-aggressive. Because I've done this in my life. We can be passive-aggressive, even in our premise of wanting to reconcile. That's what we do. So we have to be extremely careful. If you are going to, or if I'm going to address an issue, we have to consider carefully. And I will say, in my life, more often than not, I have had a part to play. I have not felt very often in my life this vindication of being able to go to the person and say, listen, this and this issue happened, and you're at fault. I've got nothing to blame. But the thing is this. If you're needing to address unrighteous behavior, is what you have to do is you have to make sure, I have to make sure that we are squeaky clean in our hearts. Squeaky clean. Can I, can I please be very, very careful and, and caution you? It's not helpful going in, I'm going to express my mind. Yeah, you did this and this and this, and I'm feeling so much better about it. It's when we have to think about addressing behavior. Can I say to you this morning, you have to make sure any ounce of resentment, any ounce of retribution, any ounce of bitterness has been banished from your heart. How does that play out? It plays out like this, that when you speak to that person, they know you're for them. You hear that? That when you come and address this behavior, they're not hearing, you did, you did, you did, you did, you did. What they are hearing is, I am for your recovery. I am for you. I'm wanting to see you prosper. I'm wanting to see the shalom, this peace of God come into your life. I'm wanting to see you recover and become what God wants you to become. That's the heart of reconciliation. It's not compromise. It's not brushing things under the carpet. You're going to lose your brother if you do that. I tell you, you are being an unfaithful brother and sister if you see something in their life that is causing damage, causing hurt, and you can come along and say, I want shalom to come to you. I want peace to come to you. 
But your heart is, I'm for you. Your heart is, I want you to recover. And I'll walk the distance. I want to see, they need to hear that you are not pointing the finger, that you have their best interests at heart. And there is a tenderness and a gentleness that Scripture calls for. And I tell you, if you can get that right, you're ready to speak. What happens if the person doesn't want to reconcile? What do you do then? Well, I'll say generally speaking, if you act quickly, they will reconcile. But if it's left, it will become more and more difficult. I would say this, and this is as far as I've got before the Lord, as I'm standing before you now, totally honest. You just make sure the door is not locked on your side. Really. That is how reconcile is if you cannot get to that point of where you can reconcile heart to heart, brother to brother, sister to sister, what you do is on your side, you say, God, the door will not be locked on my side, is that at any moment they want to open it, they're welcome to come. They're welcome. If you can get to that place, my friend, you've achieved victory. You've achieved victory. Well, the second is this. The second is this. Not only is there, I've forgotten my first point, I've spent so long on this, who takes initiative? But the second point is the person who, take, who hurt, the person who did the hurt takes initiative. But the, the second is this. The second principle of reconciliation is it must be done urgently. It must be done urgently. So can I explain to you like this? Jesus is first... Be reconciled with your brother. Stop whatever you're doing in your worship to God. Even if I may say respectively, stop praying. Pick up your phone. Put out the WhatsApp message. Can we meet? Can we do this? Can I speak to you? You start immediately putting things in place that you can start to make things right. Or when the very next example is when you're walking on the way to the courts. Quickly, Jesus says, quickly make right. Because what will happen is if you don't, hurt tends to harden. That's how it works is the longer we leave it, the harder it becomes for there to be reconciliation because resentment sets in. And my friends, this example of being taken to court and being brought before a judge and being thrown into prison is the example of when resentment has taken deep root, it breeds revenge. And if reconciliation is not undertaken quickly, we will experience the full effect of a person who is wrathful towards us. And it's, it's depicting a general thing here. It's, it's talking about an accuser. It's saying not everybody is going to act, exercise total forgiveness. I tell you, praise God, if somebody in your life has let you off the hook through total forgiveness, that's the grace of God for you. But the general speaking, humanity is not going to be gracious. If you don't make reconciliation quickly, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Not everybody has the Christian mindset of saying, well, we need, we need to have this thing of total forgiveness. No, no. This picture of this person wanting or on their way to the court, it is a picture of stubbornness because of pride. What do you do in a courthouse? You defend your cause, not so? That is what the picture of stubbornness is, is when there is this refusal to not lay down our pride and reconcile is we're willing to go to courts. We're willing to prove our case. We're willing to take this thing to the nth degree and we're going to fight it out. Oh, but the problem is here, remember, it's not whether or not this person is telling the truth that's accusing us. They've got a case. They've got evidence. They've got witnesses. And Jesus assumes that if it goes to court, we're going to be the losers. We're going to be the ones where they're going to point the finger and say, this guy did this and this and this and this and this. 
And the judge is going to go, that's right. This is right. He's right. You're wrong. And you're going to pay the full consequences for what has happened. It implies that we, if we're the one being taken to court in this context because of our unrighteous anger, is that we are the ones who had faults. And my friend, Jesus says here, you and I have to make amends fast. We have to settle that debt fast. Because what will happen is, is that accuser will start to get really hard in his vengeance. And when he exacts it or she exacts it, it's going to be in full. It will be implacable. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny in prison. What does that mean? It means when a person has reached that point, reconciliation is not going to be possible. Can I just be a little bit vulnerable this morning? Or can we be vulnerable together? We're talking about divorce recovery. Can any of you here testify to the point where God says, your marriage is in trouble, your marriage is in trouble, your marriage is in trouble, but you hardened your heart, and it hit the rocks, and then when you wanted to fix it, it was too late. Or a child where you had this relationship, but it was strained, and you knew you had to fix it, you knew you had to fix it, you knew you had to fix it, but you didn't. And now you're facing the consequences of saying, this person's gone. My child wants nothing to do with me. My mother gave me the best marriage advice. And for any relationship, she said to me, Matthew, in your marriage, you make sure you're quick to say sorry. You're quick. And this is the concept, is to diffuse the anger as rapidly as possible by climbing down from our position. It enables healing. It enables reconciliation. And maybe this is the clarion call for somebody here this morning. You're on the way. The relationship's on the rocks, but you've got this small window of, of, of opportunity. You're on your way to the courthouse. You're on the way to, it can be relationally, not necessarily physically. And there's this moment when you can settle. You can climb down. You can say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. What do you want me to do to make it right? There's this last window of open opportunity. And God is saying, you need to take it. Don't wait. If there's a friendship, or if there's this colleague, or if there's this family member, or if there's some aspect of, of any part of your life with a person that this is happening, and you have this moment of opportunity to make it right, my friend, today, today, go do it. Go do it. Because there'll be a moment when it's irreversible. And this is the sad part about it. Oh, Lord. And it happens more than it should, is the punishment or the consequences of what we experience by holding on to unrighteous anger far outweighs the act. Any of you been in a relationship and you've asked yourself the question, how on earth did it get to this? There was just a grievance. There was holding on to that pride and suddenly Suddenly, what happened in just a moment is held on to. And because we won't climb down, the cost of that small act and the consequences of it far outweigh that moment's decision and holding on to our pride. What's the third thing? Who initiates the person who hurts? Do it urgently. Thirdly, do you notice 
how you handle it, it says go only to your brother. Not your five friends and colleague and pastor and then to the person that you have hurt. It's when we deal with the situation, we go to the person one-on-one. And if you're really struggling, I'll give you a loophole. I'll say, if you have a mature Christian friend that's maybe even preferably unconnected to the situation that you can talk to and deal with stuff through, then go to that person. But the prime, prime reason why we have to go to that person one-on-one and don't bring in the world to do it is because it affects reconciliation. And uh, as living evidence... If you talk and they find out about it, you'll be back at square one. So remember what I said this morning. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here. This is me. This is you. And I'm contending for my life and yours today is that if you can reconcile with anybody, go do it. Do it now. If they don't want to, and you've gone as far as you can, that's fine. You make sure that door is unlocked. But I'd say to you, if you'll be willing to reconcile, God will be in it. God will be in it. He will give you unusual help. And I tell you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to hold on to any form of ego. Because in the end, what will happen is you'll lose much more than your hurt pride if you hold on to it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, none of us are exempt from this message this morning. And Lord, myself, I just come afresh. We come afresh, Lord. We thank you for your word that's so honest. It's so honest, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is life. And God, for some of us here, we have struggled for many, many years. And I pray this morning, Lord, you give us breakthrough. That this area in our lives would become a place of victory, not regret. That, Lord, in our hearts would experience the joy of having no hostility towards anybody. That we'd have the joy of knowing that we have a clear conscience before you. That we have the joy of knowing fellowship with you because of your goodness. And for some of us here this morning, Lord, we just need to hear, no, no, God's still got our gift at the altar. You want us back. <laughs> and that, Lord, you're in it. And that, Lord, you're going to encourage us and help us as we go. I pray for courage, Lord. I pray for tenderness. I pray for a deep sense of your pleasure for anybody here who's willing to do it. 
I pray, Lord, that this morning we'd enter into this place of peace. And we pray that, Lord, as we go from here, you would help us be ever increasingly sensitive to what we say, how we behave, what we do. And God, even now, you would remind us if there's anything in our lives, anything that needs to be dealt with, Lord, would you help us to do it? We want to lead into and live into the blessing of this joy of freedom, of experiencing the wonder and blessing of peace. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.